This is the Off Coast Podcast, where we focus on entrepreneurs, investors, and advisors located outside of the large startup ecosystems on the coasts. Now your host, Mark Frank. Hey, everyone. Welcome to the Off Coast Podcast. I'm really excited today to have Andy Altorfer, the co-founder and CEO of CirrusMD. For those that don't know, CirrusMD provides an amazing platform for patients to communicate with local doctors via smartphone and the web using secure text messaging, images, and video. Their ultimate goal is in using technology to lower the cost of delivering healthcare. And in full disclosure, I'm proud to be an investor in CirrusMD. So Andy, why don't you kick it off and uh, give us a bit of your background and maybe describe CirrusMD in your own words. Thank you. And it's always great talking to you. So my background before founding Cirrus, uh, we founded the company in 2012, so about three and a half years ago now. And uh, at the time, I was working as a tech investment banker for a uh, firm that focuses on earlier stage and high growth tech and telecom companies here in Denver called Q Advisors. Before that, I spent a bunch of time in New York, uh, both in investment banking at Citigroup and also on a trading desk at Goldman Sachs. Also had some product development experience uh, while I was at Goldman, uh, working on the rollout of a new uh, trading platform that they had built. So have a little bit of a product background, a little bit of a finance background as well, but uh, have generally spent most of my career working and advising earlier stage tech companies. I'm a fourth generation entrepreneur, had always had designs on at some point in my life starting a company, was waiting for the right idea to come along. And uh, fortunately, my business partner, Blake, had that idea. I had zero healthcare experience. So this has been a very fascinating three and a half years getting very deep in the weeds in a, a complicated and changing industry and really becoming an expert in, in what we're trying to do and, and also in the economic model changes that are going on. Because, you know, I think you did a good job of describing what SiriusMD is. The key piece as to why we're very different than most of the other services is, one, we have a text-first workflow. The Teladocs, MD Lives, American Wells, half dozen companies that look fairly similar are primarily phone call based. You go in, you put your name in, Eight minutes later, some mid-level administrative type gives you a call, takes your information, and then sometime within the next couple of hours, a doctor will call you. It's a one-off, isolated interaction. The doctors staffing those services are generally licensed in a bunch of different states. So the doctor you're talking to may be licensed in your home state, but they could be practicing five states over. That's a problem if you need a referral, if you need the doctor to really have a good understanding of your situation, your information, your demographics, and additionally, having full access to clinical data. So where CirrusMD focuses on, one, due to our text-first workflow, thinking about us in a fee-for-service world is just never going to work. Beyond that, it's an ongoing pathway of access. So a physician or a panel of physicians can manage a patient's care over a period of several days. Because of this differentiated focus, our model really only makes sense in value-based healthcare. So somebody who is already capitated, think of an ACO or an HMO, Kaiser style of practice, where the patient is already paid for on a fee-for-access basis, and you need to treat and manage patients as inexpensively as possible. The least expensive point of access is online or over a mobile device. And so we're trying to transition a significant portion of the people affiliated with these value-based healthcare organizations into a virtual or electronic workflow instead of engaging the brick and mortar whenever possible. And you know, studies show anywhere from 70 to 80% of all clinical interaction could be moved into a virtual type encounter uh, the biggest issue thus far 
has been the fact that people that are working in a fee-for-service world, it doesn't really make sense. And that is because the only way the providers get paid is to push people into the brick and mortar. They need that billable encounter to take place. Once you've gone capitated, you no longer need that billable encounter because you're already being paid. So we can shift this to being a primary point of contact. And uh, and that that's what we're working on. Yep. That, that's awesome. So, you know, there's I want to just back up a little bit. Uh, there's two things you said that I thought were really interesting. One, I want to hit on in a second, but just to make sure that listeners who don't have a healthcare background didn't just get totally lost because <laughs> um, there were a lot of things that you threw out there, you know, capitation, value-based uh, healthcare, fee-for-service, things like that. Maybe if you could just describe kind of like you were explaining to, you know, my seven-year-old son, all right, what's the difference between sort of the normal model, which is fee-based, you know, fee-for-service and value-based healthcare. And, you know, if you can provide some examples of a couple of companies that are on the value-based healthcare side in terms of the, the you know, the providers are on the payer side and, and how that model is different in as like sort of simple terms as possible. Absolutely. So for the past several decades, healthcare has been a fee-for-service world. You go in to see the doctor, the doctor submits a bill to your insurance company, and the insurance company then pays the doctor. There's a huge convergence going on between the provider side of the healthcare universe and the insurer side of the healthcare universe. And at the point of that convergence is what people talk about value-based care. The incentives change dramatically once there's the alignment between the providers and the payer or the insurance company payer is another term for that. So once that alignment occurs, you can now try to treat people at the highest quality, at the lowest cost in the most efficient manner. And interestingly, there's plenty of studies that show that those three things, efficiency tends to drive quality in healthcare. Having lots of visits doesn't drive better outcomes. Treating the patient at the right point of care quickly drives better outcomes. And so that's what we're trying to promote is having on-demand virtual access into these value-based aligned healthcare organizations where the payer and the insurance company are at one and are trying to work in coordination to drive the lowest cost care with the best access possible. And that really enables this style of virtual care. It enables text messaging based access. And to be clear, this is not SMS. It's a secure HIPAA compliant communication that takes place over our platform, but it feels like you're interacting via text messaging. And one of the reasons that our company was started is uh, my co-founder Blake is an ER doc. And what he realized is for all the same conditions, he seems, sees people waiting three, four, five hours for overnight in his ER that shouldn't be in the ER. His friends and family just simply send him a text message. They don't call him. They don't ask him to video chat. They send him a text. Mm-hmm. Hey, I've got the flu. I feel terrible. And it allows a doctor to engage in a very simple Q&A diagnostic process, just like what they would do if you're in person. Almost every doctor today has some significant portion of their friends and family texting them whenever they get sick. And those are the people in the world who have the best access to care. And Blake's ultimate vision is is that these clunky telephonic-based workflows that are prevalent in the national telemedicine companies today don't replicate what happens when the friends and family of a doctor get sick. They just text. And the ability to send an image via text messaging that helps a lot if you've got a rash or a laceration or whatever that is. 
then having phone and video chat as fallbacks for when they're needed is also a critical component. Having all of these forms of communication allows a significant laterality for the doctor in how they can learn about a patient's condition and how they can deliver care. And that, I think, is played out kind of in the statistics. So 90% of all of our encounters are text messaging only. Mm -hmm. 99% have text messaging as some component to it. Um, let's get back to sort of your story, you know, the Serious MD story. You talked a little about how it was formed uh, with Blake, your co-founder, having this idea as an ER doc. Um, but maybe, you know, talk about some of the challenges you had. I said, I, I think you know, but I first met um, your co-founders at the American Telehealth Association conference in Austin in 2013. Maybe describe now, you know, just very briefly what your general business model is and how you guys make money and then how you started and how that methodology came about and what you thought about in terms of creating that. Sure. So one of the big issues in healthcare, and particularly if you're talking about the value-based end of the healthcare spectrum versus the remaining small private practice doctors that are out there, is that you're dealing with multi-billion dollar companies all around. I mean, we're a small startup in Denver. We've got 14 employees right now and things are going very well for us, fortunately, but we're this tiny little minnow fighting these huge sharks every day. And it, it's exciting and it's intellectually stimulating, but it's also hard to build credibility. And we did start with a different model with the intent of getting to where we are today. So where we are today, we work with either regional payers or these value-based care organizations. Think of ACOs, think of managed care organizations that look like a Kaiser. Uh, and we have a number that are moving forward. In regional insurance companies. In regional well. insurance companies. So here in Colorado, uh, for example, we work with Rocky Mountain Health Plans. About 205,000 of their members have access to our platform, including uh, a substantial portion of that being Medicaid members. Rocky is completely dominant on the Western Slope of Colorado. So they actually act like a managed care organization. They're effective. They have gone what they call global cap, but they have fully capitated, meaning they're paying fee for access to a lot of the provider groups uh, in Western Colorado to manage patients. So they've moved away aggressively so from a fee-for-service model wherever possible. They still have fee-for-service components to their business, but they're really trying to push towards managed care. And so they view us as a perfect adjunct to it because it's an ongoing pathway of access. We've got a local group of ER docs that we work with that manage all of Rocky's patients. And those patients don't have to pay copays. They can just go on the platform and start texting with a doctor. And there's a doctor who's paid sitting at home with a computer, smartphone, tablet up, waiting, ready to take that patient's call, so to speak. Yeah. I mean, it's a text message yeah, yeah. generally. But that is paid for then by Rocky. They pay a per member per month fee. So we get a very small monthly fee for each member that has access to for the those 200,000 members yeah. for, yeah, for the 200,000 members. And that fee goes to pay for both Cirrus MD and our platform and also for the doctors staffing the service. So the doctors are already paid for, they're making equivalent money to what they would if they were working a live shift in the ER. So they're happy because this is a much easier form of work than they're used to. They're being well compensated on this recurring revenue style model. We've always believed that there needs to be a recurring revenue component. So let me just integrate. So to, just to make it super, super simple, mm -hmm. 
the insurance company pays you on a monthly basis per member, so per patient, really per mm-hmm. month, you get a very small amount of money. But it, you know, for a lot, a lot of people, it ends up being it scales uh, meaningful. Well. Yeah. So uh, from their standpoint, the value prop. So your customer is the insurance company in that case, mm-hmm. and oftentimes the insurance company who has their own provider network or has in-house providers. Mm-hmm. So they have a capitated type of network like a Kaiser. And the value prop to them is even though they're paying that, they're saving a lot of money because now they're they're reducing the amount of visits that people would take to maybe to centers that aren't part of their network, to urgent carers and ERs and things like that, as well as they're decreasing the flow of patients to providers that are in their network where, like you said, there is a you know, there's a wait time for getting mm-hmm. into the office to see a to see a provider. So if you can take out those people who are going in to see that provider and have them be treated via Cirrus MD, then that frees up space for somebody else to actually go in and see the doctor. And so your your customer is the insurance company, the provider network, and your user is still the patient. Yeah, there are two primary points of ROI for the insurance company. So we're fundamentally a B2B2C company. Right. So while there are consumers at the end who are the patients or the members of the insurance plan, mm-hmm. our customer is the person paying for them. Right. And whether that's a value-based care organization or a regional insurance company that's striving towards value-based care, it works the same. Yeah. Uh, if it's a full value-based organization, they've already got their own doctors, and we charge them a much lower monthly just a platform fee. If it's a regional insurance company that doesn't necessarily have doctors to staff this, we'll partner with a group of local doctors, typically ER doctors, and the fee is a little bit higher on a per member per month basis, but that fee then pays for the doctors too. And you basically pay the doctors for that, for their service. Basically, exactly. And so they have two primary points of ROI in this. One is reducing that unnecessary emergency and urgent care utilization that should be getting treated in primary care. But because of lack of access, well over 50% of ER visits, and there was a statistic that came out a week ago that said 74% of ER encounters actually could get addressed via primary care. So that, you know, whatever that range is, most of what's going through the ER shouldn't be there. And that costs 10 times more for the exact same diagnosis as it would at a primary care office. So that's a huge cost problem in healthcare. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mentioned this earlier, but there's a local managed care organization that has $180 million in what they deem unnecessary ER utilization every year. That is a huge cost problem. And that's just the difference between the markup in an ER visit and a primary care visit. Right. And so their insurers are looking for ways to increase access to lower cost points of care. Well, everybody's got a smartphone. People have computers. Let's let them do that there. The other thing that they're promoting, there's a marketing benefit to this for the insurance company. Yep. They want to retain their members. The uh, feedback we get from surveying the people that have used the service is that this is basically the best thing my insurance company's ever done. I can't believe I have this. I don't have to pay for this. They they absolutely love it. I mean, it, people, I think, tend to be skeptical. They go, there's an app, there's a website, I'm not sure. Is this a real doctor? Is it somebody in India? And we do a number of things in the user interface to try to let people know, hey, this is a real local ER doctor. They're in your community. And when they start interacting with them, or they start to realize, wow, this is, I'm talking to an ER doctor and it took me 30 seconds. Mm-hmm. I'm yep. not paying a copay. They're writing me a prescription and I'm going to Walgreens around the corner to pick it up. Yeah. Yeah. I love it. I, the, you, <laughs> you had that awesome video mm-hmm. for Rocky Mountain Health Plan, uh, which 
tell tell people where where they can find that because that video is hilarious. If you just go to YouTube and search "Save the Hipsters" or "RMHP," okay, uh, you'll be able to find it. All right, so, so everybody, do that. Go on YouTube, search "Save the Hipsters," and it's it's worth what is it, like three minutes. Or it's something three like that? minutes. All right, so I want to I want to get a couple more um, kind of talk a little more about the history, not not the history per se, but just you know, some of the challenges that you faced either as a founder who didn't really know the industry that you're working in at first, mm-hmm. um, or, you know, just sort of like, you know, the first big customer you had, I think was Rocky Mountain Health Plans, right? So how did you acquire them? You know, like what was kind of the, what was the biggest struggle you've had so far in the last three, three and a half years? Yep. Well, so, and I think we got a little sidetracked on this earlier. The biggest challenge was how do you get some initial doctors and patients using it? Mm-hmm. You've got for, you've got to be HIPAA compliant. You've got to be secure. There's a lot of things that you have to do to even put a product into the wild in healthcare. Yep. And it makes it a lot harder to get companies started. And I know a lot of people are out there starting digital health companies, but there are additional barriers to entry in healthcare that don't necessarily exist in consumer technology. And from there, you've got to get your first doctor to do it with some of their patients. And that's Again, a challenging thing. And in a a large insurance company, a large hospital system is never going to use your product until you can show, hey, there's real doctors and real patients out there doing it. And here's a testimonial from them. Here's how it works. Having those doctors talk to these early customers, you need to have that credibility. So this was a way to do that. And, you know, we had some early success, but we didn't ever really want to go out and sell to every small private practice doctor in the country. That wasn't ever our intended long-term model. It was a way to deliver some early proof. Got it. We're currently working through a bunch of other implementation work on a number of other payers. Uh, We also went live down in Austin uh, on August 1st. So we're starting to roll out and we have a regional focus. Again, we believe that all doctors should be local when participating in these services. So we're starting here in Colorado, Austin, Texas, Northern and Southern California, the DC market and Boston. And we've got various partnerships in each of those regions uh, and are in current, currently in negotiations with a bunch of different payers uh, in those markets and are uh, also establishing some national partnerships that will allow us to scale nationally. And some of the other challenges, fundraising, we made a very hard decision. My business partner, Blake, is actually based in Northern California. And we struggled with, do we start the company in Denver or do we start it in San Francisco? And the ultimate decision point, uh, Blake still works night, he works for us all day and then he works night shifts in the ER uh, a few days Never a week as well. He just doesn't sleep. <laughs> but, you know, he has med school bills he's still paying off and he couldn't fully quit his job. Right. I quit my job and we made a decision to stay here in Colorado. And a lot of that was one, I, I felt like we'd be able to raise capital from Colorado, which actually proved way more challenging than I ever thought. I knew I had better access to talent here because I've, I've been working in the tech industry in Colorado since 2007. And so Going into a new market seemed a little bit daunting while we were taking such a a large life risk. Plus, my wife had her job here and she needed to support Mm -hmm. us because I didn't get paid for the majority of the past three and a half years. (laughs) What I didn't realize is, while you hear a lot in the press about how much venture capital is going into digital health, what we're doing, I think, is starting to get traction with venture capitalists and large institutional investors as they're starting to understand the shift towards value-based care. So you mentioned, you know, fundraising was, was a little harder than you expected. What advice would you have for, for founders who, you know, aren't in a big startup hub or 
it's a lot more difficult, particularly to find that early stage funding. You know, I think one of the problems here in Denver, and I think it's the same at a lot of places that aren't on the coast, is that while there may be some good VC firms here, most of them aren't, you know, most of them are doing not super early stage, right? There are no seed funds per se in Denver, you know, I think. Mm -hmm. So it falls down to being more individual investors and angels and angel groups. So what advice would you have for people who are seeking that capital? Yeah, well, it's all very challenging. And I, I'd say keep your day job as long as possible. So you've got some income as you're making plans and laying out plans and, and figuring out, go have initial customer conversations before you even quit your your job. Mm-hmm. Really validate and test the market. We talk about this fairly regularly. If we were in the Bay Area, we would have been much more significantly funded much earlier. Mm-hmm. Our last round, uh, the one that closed in March, was comprised of you know, a number of our existing investors, which is fantastic that a lot of people wanted to re-up. And then uh, Rockies Venture Club here in Denver, which is the largest angel group here in Colorado, Sand Hill Angels and New York Angels. And so the angel groups is a route I, th- I wish I would have gone down a little bit earlier. The difficulty in the angel groups is, again, it's a lot of conversations. It's a lot of cat herding. You need to get some internal champions that are viewed as thought leaders in those groups to really step up and say, hey, guys, let's go do this deal. They have to be respected by the other members of the angel groups because they're each making their own decisions. Mm-hmm. And then it's a cat herding exercise and it takes months and even after you get commitments, people back out and people don't close and the timeline gets pushed and there's legal documentation nonsense that goes on. And so it, it, it's a major cat herding exercise. I wish we would have started that much earlier. It's a lot of conversations. You kiss a lot of frogs. You get a lot of people to make promises and have ideas and come to you with different things. People, if they see a good idea, there's a lot of people out there trying to get your equity and not really give you anything in return. Mm-hmm. Okay, so we, we're running out of time here. I wanted to, uh, one other question is just kind of, what's the thing you're most excited about right now? The thing that to me is the most exciting is, you know, that statistic I mentioned earlier that almost every healthcare, orga- large healthcare organization in the country right now is trying to figure out how to do telemedicine. Mm-hmm. And very few of them have actually figured out what that means. And we're seeing that proved out in every discussion we're having. Uh, this is both our, our kind of biggest point of excitement and biggest opportunity, mm-hmm. uh, but also our biggest fear. Everybody's out shopping right now. Some of them are adopting things that don't make any sense for what they're trying to do, mm-hmm. but it's the only option that they're aware of. I'm a small company here in Denver that doesn't have tons of funding and a huge marketing budget and hundreds of salespeople. So we're not out while a lot of these decisions are being made. Mm. Fortunately, we're in front of a bunch, uh, you know, our, our in active kind of negotiation pipeline, I think represents 8 million lives right now. Mm -hmm. Teladoc went public for a billion dollars, only had 10 million lives. So we've got some real scale and a couple, you know, one of those opportunities is three and a half million people. Yeah. You know, that's a game changer if we win it. Right. And all of those conversations are going well. People are saying, yes, this is exciting. This is new. This fits into our strategy. Let's do it. But I need the next couple of those to say yes. Mm -hmm. And, I think we've got a bunch that are close to saying yes, and I'm super excited about it. And, you know, we will be announcing some new deals here very quickly, assuming things all go right and things stay on track. Awesome. 
We're very, very excited about that momentum and we're excited about the market beginning to understand, you know, so originally it was this telemedicine thing's not real. It can't be done. Mm -hmm. Then it was, well, you're just like Teladoc and they're big already. And now people are starting to open their eyes. And part of it is because we've got a scaled population. I mean, we're in the sixth largest telemedicine companies in the country right now. Mm -hmm. Uh, We are the sixth largest of those. (laughs) But at the same time, there are only six that have any real scale. Right. And we're in that group. And so we've got proof points and we've got some credibility at this point. And we just need to replicate that into our next few wins to get more and more people understanding that this is a very differentiated approach. And I think whereas last year people tended to just say, oh, this is the same thing as MD Live, Doctor on Demand, Teladoc, American Well, Mm -hmm. whatever, those being kind of the four largest. Yep. Uh, now they kind of understand. People are starting to get, oh, wait, this is our own doctors. They're local. The business model works differently. This is ongoing access. And now we've got data, metrics, claims comparison. And that has really been a game changer as well. Whereas even when we, you know, day one, we went live with Rocky Mountain Health Plans, we didn't have any data. Now that we're nine months in, we're starting to get claims data that we can compare things to. Right. And we're starting to prove out that, hey, everything that we've been saying is here, being played out, played out in the claims data. Here, here are the numbers. Here's the numbers. From our largest customer. Yeah. Here's, here's, here's the cost savings. Right. Here uh, is how patients are using it. Here's the feedback from Here's the, the ROI to you. Here is real hard, right. hard ROI. And you're making money now. Rocky, you're, you're profitable in this line of business. Mm-hmm. And that is a exciting transition that we've been going through. And, you know, on the flip side of the excitement of kind of this mark, uh, kind of hitting the market at the right time with the right story, mm-hmm. as everybody's beginning to talk about value-based care and having a story that fits well into that. We were just invited to speak at the Health 2.0 conference uh, out in the Bay Area in two weeks. Bigger conferences are starting to realize that we fit into a major trend that's going on and are different from some of the things that have been out there. We need to move quickly because people will adopt other solutions that may not make sense for them just because we're not on the radar yet and we're not in as many places and we don't have the budget. I mean, we don't have the hundreds of millions of fundraising that some of these other telemedicine companies have. Aetna in Colorado may decide to do something different than Aetna in Illinois. Mm -hmm. And they aren't going to have as many national style solutions like they do. They're going to let each region do what makes sense for the dynamics in that market. And that actually is going to create more fragmentation in a system perspective in healthcare, but it promotes patient care continuity. Mm -hmm. So I I think that those are are very interesting dynamics. And really, you know, people will tell us, well, all the Teladoc, United at and all these guys have already worked with a Teladoc or an American Well or whatever, that part of the market's closed to you. One, it's not because we're having conversations with those companies. They are thinking about things on a localized level and those big national services can't do localized. It's not how they work. And so it'll be fascinating to see how all that plays out. But we're, we're very excited to see some of those large insurers engaging on specific opportunities and geographies for us to start developing more proof points and developing relationships with some of the bigger insurers. And then there, you know, there's hundreds of health insurance companies in this country. There's way more Rocky mountain health plans out there than there are Aetna's. Yep. And those are really nice contracts for us. And, uh, something that we're actively and our natural fit too. and they're a great yeah. fit and they get local yeah. because they, that's how they, they are local yep. and that's their own value proposition and bringing a local story to somebody that thinks about the world locally mm-hmm. is 
something that they can get excited about. Yeah, that's awesome. Well, I love it. I think you're doing great things, obviously. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, it's good to hear the progress. And, you know, I think you clearly understand this market despite having <laughs> no knowledge of it, you know, three or four years ago. Uh, obviously, you're an expert in it now. So thank you for your time. Yep. Thank um, you. Thank you for you your know, continued support. Yeah, I think it's, it's uh, really good stuff. And, you know, look forward to continuing to hear about the progress as we move on. Absolutely. Thanks. All right.